I'm your host, Adam P. Kennedy. Welcome to America's Place in the World, featuring retired four-star United States Marine Corps General and former U.S. Special Envoy to Israel and the Palestinian Authority, Tony Zinni. We're looking at the world and America's place in it. On this show, we're discussing why we fight. It's coming up right now. You were talking about Constantine and talk, talking about Caesar, Antony, and the, you know a leader's ability to lead uh, on different levels. And we we're talking about that period. When you look at Hannibal, considered one of the great generals of all time, but he his philosophy was based on revenge. Yeah. Well, you know, in all these cases, like when we're talking about the Germans, you're talking about Hannibal and all. One thing always comes up. I mean, it's the old saying. Generals talk about logistics. Colonels talk about tactics. I mean, Hannibal overextended himself. I mean, it's wonderful if you you can keep keep winning tactical victories, but you got to realize you're going to reach a culminating point at at some point. And so, you know, eventually, what did it gain him to come through the Alps and come down and win at Cannae and all that? I mean, what in the end did he gain? The the Romans eventually, you know, salted the earth and. Carthage, nothing's ever, I've been there, you know, <laughs> nothing grows. <laughs> yeah. And they leveled everything, no brick upon brick, and, uh, and basically wiped out the Carthaginians. So, you know, these are pure victories in the end. If, if it's not towards some purpose, he didn't conquer Italy, right. and he didn't conquer the Romans. It, one of the things that's most fascinating about the Romans, and there's two parts of this, is they learn from their defeats. You know, when they first fought the fights, the, the, uh, the, the what was called the, the social wars in Italy against the Italic tribes, and they fought the Samnites and the Sabines and all, they got their butts kicked. The, the trouble was with the Samnites, for example, is, is this uh, sort of formality that if you walked under the yoke after defeat and you agreed not to fight again, they took your word for it. But the Romans <laughs> violated and came back. What they did from their defeats is they they come back and said, look, we're little short guys. You know, they were all built like me, you know. They're little short guys, and they're fighting, you know, some blonde-haired, blue-eyed, you know, Nordic German, you know, or some North African. And they get in this sort of sort of physical, total physicality in, in the fighting, they would lose. So it made them go to the drawing board and said, how do we defeat them? Well, everything from designing a sword, the short sword, that fit their their size and the way they fought, because they didn't slash, they poked, and they jabbed, and then organization of structure, the sentry, the cohort, the legion, how they were formed. They were the first really to look at combined arms in any real way, you know, and, and, you know, how do you integrate cavalry? How do you, you know, the, the catapults and the weapon systems and all that, how were they integrated? And what you see is a series throughout the existence of the Roman Empire, you see a series of places where they're outnumbered. Julius Caesar, you know, for example, a number of battles in, in, in Britain where they're outnumbered, but they defeat the enemy because the tactics, the structure, the discipline in the army, that's how they end up becoming, you know, an empire and preserving it for a thousand years until I think the social structure collapsed. And what's interesting when you look at the Roman army, it's not Romans. (laughs) I mean, the vast majority of the legions are recruited locally. 
This was another thing that Caesar did. That you know, you know arguably the greatest legion was Caesar's tenth. Uh, actually, the ninth and tenth were the two he created in Spain, but they fought in Gaul, and then you know the tenth legion was the one that took uh, Masada. I mean, when you start looking at the legions and their histories and everything, it, you see how they fought until the leadership and the social conditions in Rome sort of rotted within, and then it affected the, the entire empire and, of course, the military. But in the heyday of the empire, their victories were because they had structure. You know, a, a big formidable enemy that outsized you, outnumbered you, they didn't fear fear them because they believed they they would be as they came against the the Roman system, you know the Roman structure, the Roman processes for executing war. They didn't stand a chance, and so the the Roman reaction to their initial defeats, you know, in, in, uh, when you start looking at Tacticus and you start looking at uh, Scipio and others that were great Roman generals. Their greatness was in building a structure, a set of processes, a systematic approach to warfare. Look at how weaponization and creativity fit this structure. I mean, it it, it was the forerunner of the way we now look at integrating doctrine, procurement, uh, people, training, discipline, equipping, and all that, and and packaging it. It's interesting. Would you say then that the... You know, Alexander the Great, or when Xerxes tried to invade uh, Greeks, you know, totally outnumbering the Greeks, did they have that same kind of structure? Well, in a way, the Greeks did. Greeks' success had to do with the warrior ethos more than, you know, 300 Spartans at the Thermopylae. And it maybe relied more on a warrior ethos, an individual ethos. That's not to take away from Alexander's brilliance in the way he maneuvered and did, did things, too. But I, I don't think they were as much into the detail of structure and integration and process like the Romans were. I certainly would not take away from his, you know, he had Napoleonic-like uh, uh, ability to, to understand the battlefield and to see centers of gravity. Uh, you know, when he fought uh, Darius, he said, you know, as soon as the opening came, probably the greatest description of how we should think about a reserve. Even the term reserve is a mistake. If you think in terms of reserves, people begin to think about something you hold back, you know, in case things go wrong or to to protect, you know. uh, But if you think about it in the way Alexander thought about it, this was a force to exploit opportunity. When I see the opportunity, I'm going to go after it. So he had this look on the battlefield where is Darius? As soon as I spot him, I go right for the the, the headquarters, the command and control. Everything else will break apart. He understood that. Now, in the Roman organization, that wouldn't break apart because the structure was such that you can't take one part of it out and, and defeat the whole structure. It wasn't that kind of military. I mean, the structure itself preserved itself because it's like the U.S. military. I mean, you could take out the senior headquarters, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's going to lead to complete crushing morale and defeat. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's still going to function. It's still going to operate. But the beginnings of that were really Roman. That's not to say that you, you were not, the, that the Egyptians didn't have it to a degree or the Greeks didn't have it to a degree, but it was the first time really, I think, in history, the whole package was put together. Okay, so t- two questions. 
why do you think they were able to achieve that? And then two, when's the next time we see that structure in history? Well, first of all, I think it set the standard. Well, I, I shouldn't say that because something else happened after that because when the Roman Empire came apart, we reverted. The so-called barbarian invasions, now you have Goths and Visigoths, you're back to sort of the tribal. They get overwhelmed just partially because of their own corruption of their society and, and they fall apart. So what happens, you go back now in the Dark Ages to almost tribal. Now you come back to, to fiefdoms, you know. This is the remnants of the Roman Empire. And, and so now you have small military organizations and you don't really start to see it come back until probably the 1500s, maybe 1600s, but you have that period of almost a thousand years in the dark ages where it was more isolated. You, you didn't see these massive formations like that. And it was, there was small groups, uh, the way you saw the Crusaders fight and the way they fought. I mean, I think in many ways they lost a lot. Like we lost a lot of things we knew back then that we had to rediscover in, in the Renaissance era. You know, and actually during the Renaissance era, there were, it was a military Renaissance too. Uh, so you didn't really see that come about until that the Middle Ages began to start seeing larger military formations uh, in the field. And then probably not till Napoleonic times do you really begin to see this kind of structure and combined arms and, and all come back into play in a major way like it did in, mm -hmm. in, in the Roman era. Is there a single person or persons who you can attribute Rome's development of this structure? Well, I, I think there's obviously great Roman generals, but what you begin to see is this is a collective move. I mean, you begin to see from the defeats they suffer as they begin to try to expand their empire, then the victories as they start expanding it, they keep uh, studying how this military machine should be put together and all the aspects that make up organization, you know, processes, systems, uh, you know, training, equipping and everything and how it all has to be married up in some sort of systematic approach. But I think you see a lot of, you know, over time, generals putting this together. It became maybe the first time that the operational art is put together in such detail as it was there. And again, it's not to say you didn't see the beginnings of this in, in Egypt and Greece and in Persia and elsewhere, but it's the first time it really becomes, you know, so total and so dominating. During this period, were there any groups, you talked about Vercingetorix and the Celts, the German tribes, is anyone sort of learning this and saying, you know, we can't defeat them the way we fight, we have to... We've got to evolve? No. I mean, because when Rome comes apart, and like I said, it's just interior rotting and deterioration, nobody's out there to walk in and become pieces of the empire begin to fall to various barbarian groups. There wasn't like another, there wasn't something that swept across. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, during the time of the Romans, you, you of course had Attila the Hun and there were certain characteristics they had that made it very powerful. But in the end, you know, they they didn't really take and hold for long periods of time. It still was warfare, not in, in as systematic a way as the Romans approached warfare. If you go to Barnes & Noble 
and you look up in the history section about armies, you're going to see 25 books on the Roman army. Right. You won't see anything like that on, you know, you might see one, some book on a Persian right. military. You're never going to see as much written about the Roman army because it was so rich in all these things about organization and training and equipping and tactics evolution and everything else. Where did the Mongols rank, Genghis Khan? You know, I think they brought, you know, first of all, they had certain aspects that made them powerful. One was mobility. They understood mobility. No one could move like them. They understood the power of that mobility, and they used it very effectively. Uh, they didn't do head-on attacks. It was, a, it was attrition warfare. You know, they would ride around and, and shoot the arrows and ride around and shoot the arrows, and uh, the military tried to attack them. They pulled back. They rode up and shot the arrows and moved back. But, you know, marrying a man and horse and, and the bow into a system and then using that very effectively. But you got to understand, one other thing the Romans had is when they conquered you, they administrated you. You know, there were Roman prefects that came in. They were to then solidify their gains. When you look at somebody like uh, the Mongols and others, it was pure, brutal conquering. Right. It wasn't creating something, you know, and, and building something. It was about destruction and exploitation. Uh, and, and so the military wasn't part of even a greater machine with a political and economic sort of component to how they did it, too, which is important because, you know, if you want to just purely study militaries for pure destructive power, what's the point? You know, I mean, what does it gain you? It, this is one thing that going back to the Germans that they could have learned. Had they administrated some of these places, like you mentioned, coming out of Russian rule, had they administrated them better, it might have been they might have had more support, you know, from from the people. Uh, they didn't. They were ruthless. They were brutal. They brought in the Gestapo. They had this sense of superiority. You got to remember Rome. After the Caesars, when you start looking at emperors, some of the emperors came from Germany. Some of the emperors came from North Africa. I mean, this empire didn't view itself as, as Italian, for example, or as purely Roman. It was Roman in its concept, center of gravity in its, in its heart. But the empire was the empire. You see emperors that came from all over the empire. Part of its strength was understanding once you conquer... How do you integrate? So would you say Rome was the first to really understand this idea of administering? Yes. Yeah. Uh, I think up, uh, you know, look at Alexander the Great. By the time he gets to India, his guys say, we've had it. What are we doing? And then he withdraws. He doesn't really leave anything. He did it in Egypt. He, he gave Ptolemy Egypt. And so there were the Ptolemaic uh, dynasty there. But, you know, really, it's like putting your hand in a bucket of water and then you take it out and no one knows you were there. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, what did he accomplish in the end, you know, other than, you know, and he was driven. I mean, he could have gotten to China probably. We probably wouldn't have had any Greeks left, but, you know, but, <laughs> or Macedonians. Yeah. But, you know, it, what's the point? I mean, so it kind of brings up how you look at the military. If you purely look at the military in, in tactical terms, you know, and, and you look at, well, look at Genghis Khan, he, he swept all over here. Yeah. And then what? You know, what happened? It, 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 was it long term sustainable? Did the, was the military an integral part of something greater, a political and economic process that went on? 
you know, when you when you look at Roman conquests and, and places like Spain and everything else, the legions that maintained security were Spanish, you know, were British or whatever. They had auxiliary forces they brought in from the local tribes that they had conquered. The trouble with the Germanophiles, you know, to watch the the Nazi channel on TV, they love the idea that the Germans were great at this and great at that, and you know, they can you know armor warfare and blitzkrieg and all this stuff and you know finger licking whatever they talk about all that crap to what end for 10 years they fought and then they were gone right so to what end i mean looking at purely military in a just isolated and pure military sense the purpose is lost if it's a military machine that's very efficient very effective but accomplishes something and develops something and you know, behind it is something more powerful because, you know, as Clausewitz said, it's just politics by other means. So it's part of a greater something. If it's purely for its own purpose to kill and conquer and exploit and take the treasure and go home, if you want to look at it in that very narrow view, if you're going to look at the warrior as an individual, if you're going to look at the small unit tactics, if you're going to look at operational savvy, if you're going to look at strategic thinking in terms of a military operation, or you're going to look in grand strategic view, you're going to get different perspectives because, you know, the Germans were winning on an operational level. Probably no one matched them in terms of operational skill, but they sucked at the strategic level and the grand strategic level in the end. So where do you think then that this this idea before Rome and then obviously after Rome as an army, you're just going to impose your will, you're going to commit atrocities, you're going to wipe out folks. Where does that, where does that come from? Why that continued mindset? Well, I think there's human nature. Civilization is fragile. I'll tell you where, I saw this in Somalia. You know, I mean, you go into a place like Somalia and you realize maybe a year before, this is a place that obviously was doing fairly well. You know, they had an economy, they had a governance system, wasn't perfect. Actually had a club med, you know, and a beautiful coastline, tourists went there, you know, and then boom, like that, it's gone. There's nothing, there's no institutions. There's a bunch of warlords with militias killing each other. There's no schools anymore. No, no kids are going to schools. They're part of the Morian, the gangs on the street. There's no police anymore. There's no institutions. The institutions all collapse. So, you know, one way of defining is civilization is the creation of many institutions. The stability of those institutions are what makes the civilization vibrant and productive and uh, strong. When those institutions begin to crumble, underneath it, is our basic need for security, for protection. And this is going to lead you to back to sort of a tribal mentality in, in many ways. You're going to go to your core identity in some ways. So do you think that's what it is then, the, the committing of atrocities and it really comes down to this sort of tribal mentality? Well, I, th- I think there's a lot of reason atrocities happen. Sometimes it's revenge. Sometimes it's a loss of control, lack of leadership. Sometimes it's a degradation of human sense of right and wrong, which can happen when you're watching your buddy's heads get blown off and things getting killed and, you know, you come into that. So I think there's a, it could be the, 
the fragility of the person that's thrown into that, you know, that I think that's one reason why you see the, one of the reasons why you see PTSD, that maybe uh, some of those troops that suffer that were not, you know, psychologically ready for, to, to witness that kind of, and experience that kind of trauma and all. I mean, one of the things that struck me when I was out in Afghanistan and in Iraq is that I began to realize you could literally be in a firefight and your unit's getting ready to rotate or you're getting ready to rotate if you're in it, but you've been on a firefight, you've been through this mess, you've been going through it, all of a sudden your time's up, you turn in your gear, you go and report to the air bait, you know, the processing, you're on an airplane, and the next day you're home in your kitchen with your family. And you still haven't, you know, I mean, I, I came back to Vietnam, it was a process, it was some time between it. World War II, you know, they used to go to Australia and, and New Zealand, or they didn't, you didn't come back right, where troop transports, there was some time to, to decompress. The British still do it, they send their troops to Cyprus or decompress as a unit, they talk about their experiences, whatever. No decompression, you know, so you, know, you you left this kind of very structured, safe, orderly world in the United States. You went into this chaos and killing and brutality that you experienced, and then you're thrown back into this, you know, and, and you're 19 years old. Yeah. You know, in my mind, not all, but a lot of the atrocities occur in units where the leadership is weak. Why is Milai occur? Because Lieutenant Kali and Captain Sanchez, they, those were weak leaders, you know, by every account. You know, you don't, you, it, where there's strong leadership, where the leadership's respected, where the leadership makes sure that their sense of right and wrong and their value system isn't corrupted, where there's belief in the leadership, you're less likely to see those things occur. You can't be 100% sure because you don't know what goes on in an individual's mind or what that individual brings from his, his or her own past. You rare, rarely see that occur in units with great leadership. So, so I'm curious, going back to World War II, the Japanese commit atrocities. They're brutal. The Chinese, obviously, the, the Soviet Union commits atrocities. The Germans commit atrocities. Why don't the Americans? Well, they did. You know what's interesting about the, the war in the Pacific? And, and this is an interesting study that people don't talk about it too much. What after the first uh, uh, experiences fighting the Japanese, when the Japanese were forcing civilians to commit suicide, when Japanese pretended like they were going to surrender, it was a trap or an ambush. They didn't surrender. They they killed you. They actually had civilians with traps, with hand grenades, pretend like they were coming in lines with them, places like uh, Guam and elsewhere, they had Japanese population or populations they controlled like uh, Okinawa and all. There was some serious discussion about how do we handle this? We don't kill prisoners, but what do we do if like, uh, there was a, at Guadalcanal, one of the first real battle, there was a famous ambush at Erlunga uh, River because they had heard there was a group of Japanese wanted to surrender. They sent a patrol out. It was a trap. So the discussion was, do we tell our troops not to take prisoners? Because every potential prisoner is booby-trapped, ready to sacrifice and kill themselves, even civilians. And some of our troops were doing that, just would not take a prisoner. Because, you know, they had that experience and they knew that 
this could be a trap. They, they may look like they're going to get their hands up, but they've got a grenade, a pin pulled, and, you know, whatever. So there became a, this discussion about, do we violate the Geneva Convention? What do we tell them? And so basically they said that to them, you've got to use your judgment on this in taking prisoners. And you're fighting an enemy that will die rather than be taken prisoner and has no compunction to violating the conventions. Of course, we face the same thing now with the terrorists. And, and also, how do you deal with that? How do you create a set of rules that you can push the decision down? So yeah, Corporal So-and-so has got to make the call. This is right, right there. What's he going to do? You know, you? It, it, I know what you're talking about, though. You're talking about directed atrocities. In other words, what the Germans were doing, this was at the highest levels, they were directing atrocities to be committed. I mean, of course, we did not do The Japanese did that, too. I mean, from their senior levels, that this was uh, being di- directed. So it wasn't part of our tactics or our operational plan to commit genocide or to commit atrocities. But what you got to realize, right down where the rubber meets the road, those things become a little confused too. So major difference is committing of atrocities or genocide or anything else wasn't a, wasn't a, uh, a policy. But, it, but to say right at the, at the point that stuff doesn't happen, I mean, it, it, it does. Not with the frequency Ken Burns would have you believe by his Vietnam, uh, uh, you know, they have, they have, or Oliver Stone in Platoon. I mean, like this is what everybody did. That's right. not the case. It was really rare, but it happens. So you mentioned the, the Pacific and Guadalcanal. From your perspective, I mean, I, that's fascinating. I, I didn't, I didn't know that, so I want to learn more about that. But would you consider whatever those individual soldiers were doing atrocities, or is it? You're, you're, try, you're trying to you're trying to preserve your own life. It's like rules of engagement. The way you teach rules of engagement is usually you get together with a group and you try to go through some scenarios. You're never going to find the perfect scenario. Somebody is going to come up with one where it's pure judgment. You know, you have to make a judgment call. You have to make a call, and no one can give you a set of rules that's going to fit everything. You know, so what do I do if, 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 if? You, you can create a situation in, uh, I mean, it's like arguing uh, right to life versus right to choice, you know, and when is a when is a fetus not a fetus? I mean, is it uh, when the fetus could exist outside uh, the womb, is it a person, and does it have a set of rights? Is it on conception. I mean, you can get into, well, what if, you know, the head is sticking out? Does that make it? You, know, you can see, you can get into, I mean, these are, yeah, the, yeah, these are yeah. theological arguments that, can, that are like this. So we ran into this in Somalia because uh, we drive a convoy through Mogadishu and people would come up and swarm the trucks to try to take things off the trucks. And we got an intelligence report that some of the militias were going to attempt to blow up the trucks. And so we had a sergeant that was a convoy leader. He's on the truck, you know, and he sees this kid with this, instead of running up to take things off, which they try to beat him up, this kid's coming to put something on. And he doesn't know what this thing is. It's a huge thing. And he's trying to run up, put it on. He doesn't know if it's explosive or not. So he shoots the kid. So now we have an investigation. And the sergeant said, in that split second, I had to make a call. We had been briefed before the convoy went out, and I, I, I knew the brief, too, because we saw the intelligence report that there were certain militias that were going to attempt to blow up the trucks and put explosives on. So that he had that in his mind. He sees it, and he pops the kid. 
you know, what what are you going to do? Yeah. Uh, and in that case, he he was not uh, he he was found not guilty. But kid, the sergeant had to live with that. I mean, it tore him up. But in another case where a kid came up and reached into the cab uh, of one of the trucks and grabbed the face of one of the NCOs and pulled off his sunglasses, and he shot the kid. Now he got he got punished for that reaction. Maybe you know who knows what was he pissed off, but there was no threat there. The guy was trying to steal something, but it was excessive use of force. You know, you get in that moment, what are you going to, what are you going to, how are you going to make those calls and those judgments? And so when we say things like atrocities, we have to be careful that what we go down, what we call an atrocity and, you know, what might have happened. I mean, this can't make a perfect set of rules that fit everything and that you can expect the judgment process that they have to go through at that moment. It can be tough. I mean, uh, I remember when I was with the Vietnamese Marines, we were doing an operation. We were doing a, a sweep. The United States Army units uh, wanted to do a sweep through these villages. And so they asked us to do the village sweep and they would provide the cordon around the village. So normally when you're in the village and you're doing the sweep, if somebody gets up and runs or something happens or there's a fight, they let the cordon force handle it. Everybody gets down, you know, because they're usually trying to get out of the village. So we're going through this village and this young uh, Vietnamese guy gets up and he starts running out of the village. I don't think he realized it was a cordon of soldiers. And I watched a soldier stand up and literally cut him in half with his M16, just emptied his magazine. And so I went out there, and of course the, the guy's dead. But he wasn't armed. He just had little black shorts on and ran. And I see this kid. He's all jacked up, and he's hyper, and he's almost like giggling, but not because he thought it was funny. He was just so nervous. And so I grabbed the kid. I said, "Why'd you shoot him? There was no need. You could have tackled this guy. You could have knocked him out." And and then I realized I shouldn't have said it because he reacted. You know, here comes somebody running out of the village, running toward his position, and. He goes into, you know, some sort of mode of reaction. He shoots before he thinks. I mean, I don't know who the, the guy was he shot. Could have been a Viet Cong. Could have been, you know, he's running out because he's just been scared. Who knows? I'm Adam P. Kennedy. Thank you for joining us. Find more of our episodes at APKCG.com forward slash APW.